we're wrapping up this series this morning on uh, the book of Nehemiah, something worth living for. I'm really excited about this message. I think there's some really important stuff in chapter 13. I want to tell you next week, uh, I'm going to do a standalone message on the Sunday before Easter. And the title is, What in the World is God Doing for Heaven's Sake? And if you think about the title, it's really important. What in the world is God doing for heaven's sake? That's the message. So I hope you'll be here. It's a really important message about where we're heading as a church and of course where we begin on Easter. I'm really looking forward to what lies ahead. So if you will, just bow your heads with me. Oh yeah, real quick. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, I have some friends here today, and we don't single out and embarrass visitors, but we're going to make an exception today. Uh, and I don't see them in the room. Oh, there they are in the back. Uh, you know, I have, I came here a little over 30 years ago, and I was a pastor, at a uh, youth pastor first, and the pastor of a small Baptist church in South Garland on Kingsley, right behind what used to be the Hypermart. And there are two young women here today that were a part of my youth group, and they were middle schoolers back then. And uh, Jamie's come from California. We just waved Jamie, and where's Kim? Where are you at? There you go. Both of them are here with us today. Kim's dad's with us too. When they talk about me, believe about half the stories they say, but I, I, I'm just, I'm so proud. I mean, one, that Jamie would come. Their folks live in Oklahoma, so she's just here for the service, and then she's going to be heading out. But... Um, you know, she, she married a pastor and she and her husband are now leaders in a church in uh, Northern California and God's been blessing it and growing it and just does my heart good. And I think last time I checked, I think Kim was at Bentry Bible Church. So I, I'm really thrilled to see when the young people that I built into their life for so many years that they went ahead and they continue to serve God, continue to live their life for Him. So we're really glad you're here today. Feel very honored by your presence. Uh, today's message is called that uh, somebody who really changes the world understands that victories never stay won. So if you will, just bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for this time we have. I believe with all of my heart that you're here in a powerful way already ministering to hearts and lives. You know what we've walked into this place carrying, but Lord, what we know more than anything is there's a message you want to get through to each and every one of us. And I just pray that whatever stands in the way of that right now would be removed so that we would be focused exclusively and totally on you and what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, a little bit of trivia here. It was one of the best loved movies of 1976, and it's the movie that catapulted Sylvester Stallone into superstardom. Do you know what movie I'm talking about? Rocky, that's right, it's Rocky. Now, Rocky Balboa was a small-time club fighter. Uh, he worked as a debt collector, you might remember, in the slums of Philadelphia. In the film, as a part of a publicity stunt, the then world championship boxer was Apollo Creed, and he decided he'd give a no-name a shot at the title, and Apollo Creed picked Rocky Balboa. This film was made with a budget of just a little over a million dollars and went on to make $225 million worldwide. Uh, did I tell you, it was shot in just 28 days. It ended up earning, like I say, 225 millions. It was the highest grossing film of 1976. It won three Oscars. Uh, one of them was for best picture. Now the entire Rocky series, Rocky won through what, like 32? No, I think there were only, there were seven movies. The entire series raised $1.3 billion. So Rocky was this kind of feel-good, rags-to-riches story. And what I have today as we get started is the closing scene from that very first movie. Let's watch this. 
Oh, oh, the champion really tagged him. And Apollo clearly protecting his right side, his ribs. Okay, now you're probably all wondering, what does that have to do with Nehemiah? <laughs> well, honestly, nothing at all. I just wanted to show it. No, I, uh, there, there, it, this really has everything to do with Nehemiah. What you may not realize is the ending you just saw is not the ending that was a part of the original screenplay. That Sylvester Stallone, who wrote this screenplay, scripted a different kind of ending for this film. What he had written was that Rocky was supposed to accept money to throw the fight to Apollo Creed, who, by the way, was supposed to have been Jamaican. Then Rocky was going to use that cash to help buy his girlfriend, Adrian, a pet shop of her own. Remember how they met in the pet shop? He was going to buy her her own pet shop, and that was going to be the conclusion to the movie. So I think we can all agree good script editing here, right? I mean, this was, a, this was a good modification and had the movie been shot the way Sylvester Stallone wrote it, we probably wouldn't know who Sylvester Stallone was today because it would have been a mega flop. Uh, we, we, as an audience, we love feel-good endings. We love it when the, the man and the woman ride off in the sunset, or in this case, cling together in the center of the ring. Adrian! I mean, we all did that, right? We saw the movie, we all did the stupid Adrian call. So anyway, it brings me back to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah wrote a bad ending for this book. It's true. It's what really happened, but everybody agrees it's bad. Everything has been really wonderful up to this point. Through chapter 12, it was great. But in chapter 13, there's nothing in this chapter that makes you feel good. Had the book ended last week, you know, last week was this revival. I mean, people are on fire for God. Uh, they're making all these new commitments. They're making these vows to God. Everybody wants to do it God's way. The choir has lined the top of the Jerusalem walls. They're singing at the top of their lungs the praises to God. That's a great ending. That's a Hollywood blockbuster ending. But Nehemiah doesn't end with a bang. It ends with a whimper. Between chapter 12 and chapter 13, 
Nehemiah gets recalled back to Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. He's got to get a report back to the king of Persia. And when he finally returns to Jerusalem about 10 years later, everything has fallen apart. All the promises that were made are no longer being kept. You want to know something else? This is not the only story in the Bible that ends this way. If you read the book of Jonah, chapter 3 is the single greatest revival in the history of the world. It's about the Assyrian Empire, their capital, Nineveh, where that all these people, hundreds of thousands, repent and give their life to God. I mean, this is, this is the most, this makes Jonah the most successful evangelist in the history of the world. It's a Billy Graham crusade on steroids. And not only is everybody getting their right, heart right with God, the Bible says even the cows are covered with sackcloth and ashes. When you preach in such a way as you get cows to repent, I mean, that's really good preaching. But then chapter four comes right after that. In chapter four, Jonah, the prophet of God, is sulking under a tree, and you wonder, did Jonah get his heart right with God? And again, this is not the only story like this. There's this amazing story in the Old Testament of Joseph. Joseph is a type of Christ. When you look at his life, there's so many things that he says and does that are an exact mirror of what Jesus Christ would do. And then you read Genesis chapter 47, and you learn that, that Joseph single-handedly teaches the Egyptian empire how to enslave an entire race of people without ever firing a shot. And it's the last thing you want to know about this hero. But it brings me to a really important principle. One of the most important truths about the Bible is that it always tells the truth even when it messes up a perfectly good storyline. It tells the truth about its heroes even when it makes them look bad. It's called the Holy Bible, but in this book, you'll find more murder and rape and incest and dysfunctional characters than practically any other book ever written. It's all in there because it's the truth. It's all in there because when it comes to people, the Bible is a tell-all. It gives us the good and it gives us the bad, which makes me trust the Bible and love the Bible even more. The Bible doesn't mind making its heroes look bad. Life is not all ice cream and unicorns. The Bible tells it like it is. Now, a book that is not self-filtering is a book you can trust. A book that dares to tell you that even good people mess up is a book you can trust. A book that tells us that people fundamentally are broken, but God loves us anyway, that's a book you can grow to really love and you ought to be very acquainted with. So when Nehemiah finally retires from his job in Susa, he goes back to Jerusalem. And in chapter 13, this is about what he found. And I call this first point, when the fire goes out. So this past week, I was doing some search, some research on uh, world records when it comes to fires that have burned the longest in history. There's an abandoned town in Pennsylvania called Centralia. There's a fire that's been burning there for 55 years. Some people say it'll burn for another 250 years. If you go into the town, you'll find all kinds of signs that warn of the dangers of asphyxiation or simply just following, uh, falling in and being swallowed up by the ground. This is an old mining town, used to be the home of about 1,000 people. What happened is one day on Labor Day in 1962, this town decided they would burn out their old landfill to make room for more garbage. What they didn't think about is that landfill was an old strip mining pit. And that pit was connected to veins of coal that ran throughout all the countryside. 
So when they lit that fire, eventually they could put the fire out above ground, but those coal mines, they all caught fire. And eventually the fire spread underneath the town of Centralia and the, and the government was afraid the entire town would just collapse. And so they condemned it and made everybody evacuate. I think there were like two or three families that stayed on to live in that town, but it's highly dangerous to live there. And that, that's still burning. There's another fire like it in Straitsville, Ohio. Uh, in 1884, coal miners were on strike and they decided they were gonna teach their bosses a lesson. And so they took some coal cars, put some wood timbers on it, lit it on fire and sent it into the mine. Well, what happened was they wanted to put that fire out really quickly, but it spread. And it spread so vastly that the entire mine caught on fire, which meant all the coal miners lost their job because you couldn't go back into mines that were set ablaze. But at the same time, that fire just continued to burn and burn and burn. So in 1884 is when it started. Back in the 1930s, the government tried to put it out by kind of um, digging into uh, the mines themselves, the mine works, and refilling with clay. And that should have done the trick, but it didn't. In the 1970s, an entire highway had to be rerouted in Ohio for fear that it was gonna collapse because the coal had burned out underneath the highway and there was not enough structure underneath the highway to support the traffic. There are people that still come from all over the world to Straitsville, Ohio, just to see this smoke escaping from all these holes in the ground. There are people that still live in this town and they say that over these vents, you can make a cup of coffee or you can fry an egg. There's just so much heat and so much smoke escaping from the earth. That's one fire. But the third fire makes the other two look like child's play and it's not burning in the US. It it happened in the country of Australia beneath Mount Wingan in New South Wales, Australia. Lightning struck a coal seam back in 3000 BC, 3000 years before Christ and it's still burning. So this is a fire that's about 5,000 years old and it just continues to burn. That's a long lasting fire. Well, in chapter 12 of Nehemiah, what we looked at last week is God lit a fire in the people and it is completely extinguished by chapter 13. So roughly 10 years after their vows, you couldn't even tell that they'd ever made a commitment to God. Reminds me of something General William Booth, he's the founder of the Salvation Army, he once said, He said, you must always bear in mind that it's the nature of a fire to go out. You must keep it stirred and fed and the ashes removed. Now, apart from these coal veins underneath the earth, most of the fires that we start on the surface, they will go out on their own, largely because they'll burn up all the fuel or they're not fed. Well, Nehemiah discovered the same truth about the spiritual life. If I leave a fire unattended that even God lights, that fire will eventually go out on its own. It's human nature to let it happen. This is what Paul meant when he wrote to young Timothy, who was the the lead pastor at the church of Ephesus. He said, for this reason, I remind you to fan and flame the gift of God. In the RSV, they render that verse, rekindle the gift that's got, rekindle the gift of God that's within you. And then the message Bible, Eugene Peterson said, the special gift of ministry you received, keep that ablaze. So Paul's pointing out a basic truth about fire. It has to be stoked. It has to be fed. You gotta feed it air, you gotta feed it constant fuel. It needs your constant attention. God may light a fire, but you're the one in charge of keeping it lit. So if you neglect your spiritual life, if you refuse to listen to the Holy Spirit, then that fire that God lit will eventually just go out. It'll give less light and give less heat until finally it's just this pile of cold embers. You can lose your passion. You can lose your fire, trust me, I know. I mean, I've seen people throughout all my ministry lose their fire for God. 
So Paul says, fan the flame. And literally what he says, when he says fan, it's, it's, a, it's what's called a uh, present infinitive. In the Greek language, that implies continuous action. So he doesn't say fan the flame. He says, keep on fanning the flame. In other words, if you want the fire of God to burn bright in you, then this is something that needs your constant attention. You have to intentionally fan that flame that God has lit in your heart because on its own, and just as a matter of neglect, that fire can just go out. So here's my question for you. A most important question, does God get tired of being let down? I told you there's this link between chapter 10 and chapter 13. In chapter 10, the people make four vows. We talked about this last week. They pledge to follow God's word, to live separate from the world, to keep the Sabbath, and to support God's work. They've broken all those promises. So does God ever get tired of that and just say, what's the use? I can't possibly be more kind than what I've been to these people. I can't be more loving than what I've been. I can't be more supportive. I promise them that they don't have to do it on their own, that I'll do it with them. I'll give them the strength and ability to do all the things I've commanded them to do. But all I get in return is a bunch of empty promises and nothing to show for it. Is God ever disappointed in us? Can I tell you something that might shock you? God is never disappointed in you. And you say, Pastor Keith, how, how is that possible? I disappoint myself all the time. But the reason you and I get disappointed in ourselves is because we don't know ourselves. To be disappointed means something has to happen that you didn't expect to happen. That's the very nature of the word disappointment. I expected one thing, I got something entirely different. So let me ask you this about God. God is an omniscient being, which means God knows everything, which means God knows the future as clearly as he knows the past. So does anything ever happen that God didn't expect to happen? No, of course not. He knows the future, he knows the past. Everything that happens is exactly what he knew would happen. So think about that in light of you and me. Does God know all the dumb things you'll ever do with your life? Yes, he does. And he knows all the dumb things I will ever do. Does he know what sins we'll commit? When we'll commit them? How we'll commit them? What our temperament will be at the time? Yes, he knows that. God knows the promises you'll make and he knows every promise you'll make because he's omniscient. He knows everything. There's nothing hidden from him. So nothing ever happens that God didn't expect to happen. It's not like God ever says, I guess I just didn't see that one coming, right? I mean, he sees everything coming because he knows what you and I will do. He knows we make promises and don't keep them. And he's not disappointed. Because to be disappointed, he would have to expect something different to happen. So I want you, in light of that truth, and this is a core truth of scripture, that God knows everything but loves us completely. Listen to this verse in light of that. Long ago, even before he made the world, before he called any of this into existence or any of us into existence, long before God made the world, he chose to be his very, he chose us to be his very own through what Christ would do for us. He decided then to make us holy in his eyes without a single fault. We who stand before him covered with his love. I've known a lot of Christians who walk around with a constant fear of rejection. That God is going to reject me for how I fail. And that has no basis in reality. This verse says, through what Christ did, 
What God decided to do was to make us holy and without a single fault and covered with love. When I am in Christ, I find perfect acceptance in the Father. He made of me what I could not make of myself. He made me holy and faultless through Jesus. And his settled disposition toward me is love. You realize that's what the cross is all about, right? From the time before history ever began, God knew that to have a relationship with imperfect beings, that he would one day have to send his son. His son would die and pay the penalty for all of our sin and all of our brokenness and all of our waywardness. And when we trust him, his perfect life would be given to us so that when the father looks at us, he looks at us like he's looking at his son. He sees Jesus, he sees perfection, he sees flawlessness, and he sees someone he loves incredibly. This is the irrational, inexplicable, inexhaustible love of God for you and for me. Now, do you believe God loves you like that? Because unless and until you believe God loves you like that, what you will do is you will take your broken way of thinking and you'll project it onto God. And you'll believe that God looks at you the way you look at you. And that's a distortion and that's a lie. Only the truth sets us free. And the truth is, as long before the world was ever made, God had a plan. He would send his son and he would change us forever through that plan. And we would be seen through the eyes of perfection. So let's look at the vows they made and what actually happened. The first one was submission to God's word. The people all said in unanimity last week, they said, hey, we'll do what God says. Whatever his word says, that's what goes. We're gonna follow him. And they completely abandoned that. I wanna remind you of an important principle about disobedience. Disobedience doesn't rob you of your relationship with God. It robs you in your relationship with God. When we disobey, we're not disenfranchised from God. God doesn't throw us away. We're not robbed of our relationship with God. We're robbed in our relationship with God. What I'm saying is the barriers that get erected, they're completely on our side. They're the ones we have erected. When we're disobedient, we put a blockade between us and God. We've done that, not God. We did that through our sin, through our disobedience. And God wants us to see that thing taken down through the power of forgiveness. So let's talk about how the particulars of this played out. Last week, we discovered one of their commitments was separation from the world. They said, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. So let me explain what happened here. One of the priests, his name is Eliashib, and Eliashib has this large room in the temple that he gives to Tobiah to live in. Now, I don't know if you remember from the early chapters of Nehemiah who Tobiah is. Tobiah is the arch enemy of Nehemiah. This guy's a scoundrel. He's, he's an Ammonite. And he's not just an Ammonite, he is somebody who has conspired against Nehemiah to kill him. And throughout this book, Tobiah has been the enemy of God and a thorn in Nehemiah's side. But while Nehemiah has been away in Susa, the high priest gives Tobiah the keys to the city and makes him his own special room inside the temple. So not only is this guy the arch enemy, but it's totally forbidden for a Gentile to live inside the temple itself. So this is a direct result of breaking this promise about intermarriage. One of Eliashib's relatives was married to Sanballat's daughter. Sanballat and Tobiah are fast friends. Because Eliashib compromises this whole thing about intermarriage, he ends up making this pact with the enemy and does the unthinkable. So a lot of people ask, why does God seem to have it in for the Ammonites and the Moabites? Just real briefly, let me remind you. When the children of Israel were set free from Egypt 
and they're about to go into the wilderness. So this is even before they go into the promised land. They're going through the desert. They need food and they need water and they're desperate for it. In the Middle Eastern culture, if someone came to you and said, I need food and water in the desert, you give them food and water because without that, you die in the desert. So when the children of Israel come to the Ammonites and said, we need food and water, guess what they said? No way, Jose, we're not gonna help you. In fact, they decided since they were weak, they would go ahead and attack them right there and try to kill them. And God, of course, thoroughly routes the Ammonites. In the same chapter, then you have the Moabites come and they hire this prophet named Balaam to come and curse the Israelites. And God, of course, turns the curse around and makes it into a blessing. But what we know from scripture, from history and archeology, span the religion of these people was awful and degrading. Their God was a God called Chemosh. And Chemosh in 2 Kings 3.27 required human sacrifice and he loved the sacrifice of children. In Numbers 25, we're told that a part of their worship was sexually degrading practices. Now, both of these nations were born in perversion and they continued that in their religious practices. And God wanted his people to have nothing to do with them. But even with all of that given, you realize that God still recognizes faith where he sees it because there's an entire book in the Old Testament dedicated to telling the story of a Moabite. Her name was Ruth. You remember this story? She marries into the family of God and she ends up being in the lineage of Christ because it doesn't matter if someone's an enemy, God still recognizes faith where he finds it and he honors that faith and he brings her into the family of God. So another commitment they made was in regard to the Sabbath. I told you last week that the Sabbath was given to put greed in check. A lot of Christians today just think of the Sabbath as a day off, a day of rest. There's a measure of truth to that, but that's not the main reason God gave us the Sabbath. The main reason God gave us a Sabbath was to punctuate work and the making of money. That commerce would cease on the Lord's day to remind them that there are things that are more important than money. But when Nehemiah gets back, what he discovers is the merchants are in town and they're selling seven days a week. The final, the final vow they made was support for God's work. They said, we will not neglect the house of our God. So get this, ministry at the temple had been so severely neglected that the Levites, the shepherds, had to leave and go work the fields or their families would starve. The reason that uh, Eliashib could give a whole room in the temple to Tobiah is because these rooms were empty. They should have been filled with grain and offerings and all of these things that people were given to support the work of God. But since they're empty, somebody let them live in there. So what ends up happening is these people who had committed, who'd signed a pledge not to neglect the house of God, not to neglect God's work or God's worker, They've totally failed on that commitment. To me, it's a powerful reminder that when we go flat spiritually, typically the first place that shows up is in our giving. It's like Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What Jesus taught us is my heart and my wallet are inextricably bound together. Where one goes, the other goes, always. What I really value in life, where my heart really is, my money follows after that. You know, when you love something, when you just, you love fishing, you know, you, you, you're at, you're at the, the, the sporting goods stores all the time. You're looking at the latest rods and tackles and things like that. Your heart's in fishing, your money goes in fishing. When you love shoes, when you love technology, I mean, I give you a long enough list, I'll get to everybody in this room. I mean, we, we love something where the heart is, the money goes. Jesus says they just go together. And so typically, when my spiritual life goes flat, the first place it shows up is right here. I stopped giving. This is why how a person gives is often a better indicator of where they are with God 
than the underlining in their Bible. You recognize the name Denzel Washington, right? I mean, Oscar-winning actor, amazing, amazing individual. He gave a speech at uh, Dillard University just a couple of years back. It's an amazing speech. Here's my favorite part. Listen to this. Put God first in everything you do. I do this because I always remember that everything I have is by the grace of God. The same is true of you. Understand that. It's all a gift. So get on your knees and thank God. Thank him for grace. Thank him for his mercy. Thank him for understanding. Thank him for wisdom. Thank him for your parents. Thank him for love. Thank him for kindness. Thank him for humility. Thank him for peace. Thank him for prosperity. Then as you understand God's faithfulness to give, give back, reach down and pull someone else up. That's powerful. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but Denzel Washington is a preacher's kid. And he has been a part of the same church in downtown LA for like 35 years. He's a tither. He gives the first 10% of everything he makes to God. And his church just recently went through a building campaign and I understand he donated like $2.5 million to help in the project. He's a Christian who doesn't just talk about the importance of giving, he really gives, he practices what he preaches. When he talks about putting God first, he puts God first. And that reminds me of this last principle that a leader's work is never done. Now, a lesser man might have walked into this situation after having been gone for 10 years and seen the people had reneged on all their commitments and just said, hey, I give up. There's no point of this. Well, I mean, why do I try to reform these people? But Nehemiah is not your average leader, so he confronts the problem and he does what's right. A leader has to have patience because a leader's job is never done. Leaders have to go over the same ground again and again. It reminds me of something Don Henley said. Don Henley was the drummer for the Eagles, the man, the Eagles. He was once asked what it takes to be a success in the music industry. This is what he said. In order for someone to be successful in the music or entertainment business, that person must have a high tolerance for repetition. Honestly, that's what the music business is. It's doing the same music the same way again and again, night after night. I mean, that's the average really successful musician is out there and they're doing a concert. You don't show up at a concert for your favorite artist wanting to hear some new version of a song you've heard on the radio and you love. You wanna hear that version you've heard on the radio, right? And so they have to do these same songs over and over again. I mean, some slight variations here and there because it's live, but pretty much if you're in the music industry and you wanna be successful, you gotta have a high tolerance for repetition because you're gonna do the same stuff over and over again. Same is true about successful leaders. Repetition is the name of the game. Our work is never done. What we teach today has to be taught again tomorrow. A leader's work never gets to the point where a leader can stop leading. Like for one thing, a leader has to stand for what's right and against what's wrong. When Nehemiah learns that Tobiah is in the temple, he's ticked. Listen to what the Bible says. He says, I was very angry. In the Amplified Bible, they render it, and it grieved me exceedingly and I threw all the household furnishings of Tobiah out of the chamber. So when he hears what Tobiah is doing, he cleans house. Why is he so angry? He's angry because God's house has been defiled and everything within that temple is now defiled because they've done the unthinkable and let a Gentile live in the temple of God. So Nehemiah orders the people to get Tobiah's stuff out and on the curb. How many times have you been driving around our neighborhoods and? All of a sudden you see somebody's stuff, all their worldly belongings sitting out on the curb. I mean, typically that's because not they're moving, they just conveniently put it all in one place. It's not a free garage sale. What it means is somebody's been consistently delinquent on their rent 
and a landlord has said, okay, you didn't move out on your own, I'm gonna move you out, and they just put all their stuff out on the curb. Well, Tobiah just came home one day and found all of his stuff by the curb. Nehemiah moved him out. You have no business being in here. Now, does this remind you of anybody else? Reminds me of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ showed up at the temple one day and discovered things that were going on there that were evil and wrong. And he decides to clean house. He overturns tables and chairs of the money lenders. He drives out all those animals with a whip. He's evicting those who have no business being there. You need to remember that any leader worth their salt is gonna get angry from time to time. I've heard it said, it's important for people to know what you'll stand for, and it's equally important for people to know what you won't stand for. And by way of clarification, there's a big difference between a conviction and a preference. According to the Supreme Court, a preference is a very strong belief held with great conviction. So you can devote your whole life to a preference. You can teach your kids your preferences. You can proselytize people over to your preferences. And the Supreme Court will say, that's still just a preference. A preference is a strong belief you have, but it's a belief you'll change under the right circumstances. Peer pressure, family pressure, lawsuits, jail, threat of death, you'll give up on that preference. A conviction's different. A conviction is something you won't change because you believe it's something God requires of you. And in case you didn't know, preferences aren't protected by our constitution, but convictions are. If you're a leader, you're gonna have to determine what hills you're willing to die for. Those are your convictions. And as a leader, from time to time, you have to make a stand when those core convictions are threatened or violated. Leaders don't like to fight, but leaders will never back down from a fight when it's a matter of conviction. So we stand for what's right, we stand against what's wrong, but we also advocate for God's work and God's workers, that they're worthy of our support. We have to redirect people's priorities all the time and call people back to the main thing. When Nehemiah realizes the Levites are out there in the fields trying to do a job they were never trained to do just to survive, he tells the people, this is not right. You're supposed to not just give to honor God, you're giving in order to support God's work and those who are working full time to support the ministry that's happening. The third principle is that God is more important than money. So Nehemiah sees on the Sabbath day, all these merchants set up making money seven days a week. So he decides on Friday night, they're gonna close the gates of the city and nobody's coming in. Why do they close the gates on Friday night? because Friday night is the beginning of Sabbath. It begins Friday night, it goes through Saturday night. Saturday night, after the, after the sun sets, Sabbath is over. And what he tells the priest is, I want you to go and cleanse yourself for this job. Why do they have to purify themselves to close a gate? To remind them that what they're doing is God's work. This is holy work, this is holy city, these are holy gates, and when you close those gates, you're telling those merchants, you're not coming in on the Lord's day to make money. The gates are closed, you can wait until the next day to come in and make your money. The fourth principle is that relationships will make or break us. So despite the promises to the contrary, they began to intermarry. When Nehemiah walks through the city, he hears all these children speaking in the tongues of the Ammonites and the Moabites, and he thinks, what's up with this? I mean, these people must have violated this commitment within a year or so because they've already married and they're having kids and these kids are speaking in foreign languages. They no longer are gonna understand Hebrew or understand the scriptures. I mean, things have declined so quickly. We make promises. God, I'm gonna serve you. God, I'm gonna love you with all my heart. God, I'm gonna read your word. I'm gonna pray every day, God. 
And let's be honest, a lot of those promises have a very short shelf life. We do it, we do it for a few days, we forget about it, we're back to our old ways. To not honor God in their primary relationship like marriage would have a long-term chilling effect on the people. But then there's this final principle and it's a plead for humility and help. Nehemiah prays four times in chapter 13. Every prayer is pretty much the same. Remember me for this, O God. Don't blot out what I've faithfully done for the house of my God. Remember me, remember me, remember me. Every time he prays is after he's rebuked people for having violated what they promised to do. Now, some people, when they read this, they read it like, well, the people did bad. And then Nehemiah says, but don't forget me, God, I did good. They did bad, I did good. They did bad, I did good. That's not what Nehemiah is saying. When Nehemiah prays, every time he prays, he's thinking about when he left. And he's thinking about how everything was going great. And when he got back, everything was a mess. And this is less, don't lump me in with them, and more about, God, forgive me for this. God, these people have fallen so far from where I wanted them to be. Don't remember my fouled up leadership. Don't remember how I failed these people. God, please just remember the good. And God, please don't remember their failure either. Instead, remember the good. Nehemiah's feeling responsible. And he's asking for grace. I mean, let's face it, we all sin, we all mess up, we all fail to fan the flame that God lit in our soul. So there's huge, two huge takeaways from this chapter. One is how easy it is to neglect our spiritual life because the fire has to be constantly maintained. If we don't give it the kind of daily maintenance that it needs, it'll go out. Someone said our spiritual life is kind of like a flat tire. Now, most of us in this room have had a flat tire in our car and most flat tires are not from blowouts. You know what they're from? Slow leakage. They say over the winter months, the tire can lose one, two pounds of air a month. And pretty soon what happens is, is over time we lose air in tires and we typically don't notice it until it gets difficult to steer our car. And we say, hey, something's wrong. And we go out and the tire's half flat. Well, what happens is, is just through neglect. I mean, you're not, you're not actively saying I, I want to disregard my walk with God, just through neglect. Pretty soon, what used to be vibrant and healthy and growing and vital is, is all but gone. You know, one of the reasons I love spiritual disciplines and one of the reasons I love Henry Nouwen's definition of a spiritual discipline is he says, spiritual disciplines create space in my life in which God can work. So what that means is whether you're reading your Bible, praying, fasting, meditating, spending time in solitude or silence, every spiritual discipline has the same motive behind it. I engage in the discipline to create space in my life that's not about me and it's all about God so that God has access to me and God can work in me. You need spiritual disciplines in your life. That's your part of fanning the flame. That's your part in keeping the story alive. But the other big lesson that comes out of this is something I mentioned to you last week. The consistent characteristic of the Jewish people in the Old Testament is their failure. God rescues them, he forgives them, he provides for them, and every single time, doesn't matter what, how gracious God has been, they fail, they disobey his laws, every single time. And these people are God's chosen people. So think back to what I mentioned just a little earlier. Did God know his chosen people would mess up the way they messed up? Did God know when he chose them that they would spend more years in disobedience than obedience? 
Did God know that every time they swore they would never do it again, that given enough time, in fact, they would do it all over again? Yes, he knew that, and he still chose them anyway. So what does that say about God? And what does that say about us? Because you realize now we're called the chosen people. Christians are called God's holy nation. We're called a people that are peculiar to God. Peculiar means belonging to God, uniquely belonging to God. We are a people who belong to God. God knows we mess up. He knows we renege on our promises. And yet he chose us knowing all that. God entertains no illusions about who you and I are. And yet his settled disposition toward us is love. That's an amazing God. An amazing God who knows every single thing about you, every failure you will ever have, every way you will embarrass yourself, every way you will disappoint yourself, every way in which you will beat yourself up. God knows all of that. And he knew all of that before he saved you. And he knows all of that now. And yet he still loves you. Because you see, this love is not predicated on what you did. It's predicated on what Jesus did. It's not about the promises you make. It's about the promises he made. He made a promise that he would redeem every life who trusted in his son, that he would cover them with the covering of the blood of Christ that would forgive them for their every sin and that he would see them as holy and as spotless and as faultless and just completely covered in love. You see, the, I love the way this story ends. I love that it ends messy because if God's love can't cover messy people, then we have no hope. But God's love does cover messy people and it covers my faults and it covers your fault. I mean, it's just amazing what God does. And he wants to do that for you if you don't know his son. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the wonderful truth found in a terrible chapter. It is so anticlimactic to everything else that happened before, but God, it is the story of life, that we are not a perfect people, that we are big on promises and really short on performance. That Lord, we think that it's all about what we can will to do and that we're gonna try harder and we're gonna finally make our life really please you. And God, we end up just going back to the same things over and over again. But you know that about us. You know us completely. You know our past, but you know our future. And yet your settled disposition toward us is love. It's one of acceptance because of what Christ did, not because of what we do. And so, Lord, if there's somebody here that doesn't know you in a personal relationship, who hasn't trusted your son as their forgiver and their leader, help them to pray this simple prayer with me right now. Jesus, I want you in my life. I know I've sinned. I know I've done things my own way. I know, God, I make my own choices. I know I try to reform my life only to fall back on my face all over again. And so, Lord, I'm tired of trying and failing. I need what only you can do for me. I need Christ's covering. I need his forgiveness. I need to know, God, that your plan is sufficient to save me and to make me into the person that I've always longed to be. God, I ask Christ into my heart. I want him to be my forgiver and I want him to be my leader from now on. As best I know how, I give my life to you. Absolutely everything, holding nothing back. God, my life is yours. Do with me as you see fit. And God, I just want to live for you and I want to love you for the rest of my life. Do in me what I can't do for myself. Set me free. In Jesus' name, amen.